Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, May 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... I don't really give a damn who is in charge of this money. What I care about is the people who need it, and they need it now. The governor and legislative leaders clash over Mississippi's CARES Act appropriation. And as meat processing plants across the country close down, we examine Mississippi's billion-dollar poultry industry. Then a closer look at Mississippi's growing unemployment claims. Plus, state universities begin weighing how to safely open in the fall. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi legislature will restart its session earlier than expected as lawmakers and Governor Tate Reeves clash over who has power to appropriate $1.25 billion in federal CARES Act money. Republican leaders of the House and Senate say the Mississippi Constitution assigned spending authority to the legislature and have instructed the Department of Finance and Administration to hold the federal dollars until they figure out a plan to distribute them. Governor Reeves, who unveiled his plans for the funds earlier this week expressed frustration with the legislature's efforts during his daily press briefing yesterday. I don't really give a damn who is in charge of this money. What I care about is the people who need it and they need it now. We can't develop a system where the people who need the money cannot quickly access it. We cannot have a system that is not carefully constructed. Uh, We cannot afford any missteps. Uh, We have to be flexible because we don't know for sure if the virus is going to come back in the fall. And, of course, that's what previous legislatures have contemplated when making decisions uh, in an emergency situation. Um, They recognize this, but the bottom line is is we can't allow politics and bureaucracy um, to cost Mississippians the money that they so badly need, and they so badly need it quickly. Uh, We've been in contact with many leaders uh, in the legislative branch of government. Uh, It is um, certainly um, a developing issue, uh, developing very quickly, uh, but I will tell the people of Mississippi this. Um, I was elected to be governor, and I had no clue I was going to sign seven emergency declarations in the first 100 days in office. But I've had a lot of Mississippians call me and text me and say, uh, that God's put, God puts people in places for a reason. And I will never stop fighting for the people of this state, no matter what it takes. Reeves claims if the lawmakers change existing statute, it will hinder his ability to respond swiftly in times of emergency. 
if this legislation is changed and it limits the executive's authority during a time of emergency, then what that means is every time there's a tornado, we'll be calling a special session of the legislature. Every single time there is a hurricane, we'll be calling a special session of the legislature. If the virus comes back in the fall, we'll be calling a special session of the legislature. And so I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that we can work together with our, our leaders um, uh, in, in the legislative branch. Uh, I will tell you, we, we are looking uh, for uh, more uh, ways in which to appropriately spend the money. And that's something that, that we are uh, very interested and open uh, to legislative input. In fact, um, would have already done so. We haven't spent any of the money yet. We have a group of very strong private sector leaders uh, looking at various industries and various uh, sectors of our economy as to uh, what recommendations they make. They don't have authority, but they certainly have uh, the ability to make good, strong recommendations, and, and the, the legislature uh, would have the same opportunities uh, under the, the way in which the program was set up. The legislature recessed its 125-day session temporarily on March 18th following the governor's issuance of a state of emergency related to COVID-19. It will reconvene today at 1. Concerns over meat and other food shortages were also addressed during the governor's briefing. This comes after a number of meat processing plants across the nation announced shutdowns due to outbreaks of COVID-19. Agricultural Commissioner Andy Gibson asked Mississippians not to panic when they see empty meat shelves. We have frozen chicken supplies in this country that would last a long, long time. It's at capacity right now. The fact is we have more food than we know what to do with. Now, that being said, there is a demand issue. When there are these reports that come out in the media and the press and people get afraid, then they may run to the stores and they may buy up everything. And you may go to a store and find there's no milk there, there's no butter there, there's no meat there. But that's a temporary thing. There's another truckload coming. Our grocery stores, when this crisis started, we're getting maybe a truckload of, of different products a week. Now they've tri- they're tripling that because it's really the only retail outlet for food, grocery stores, since the restaurants have closed for the most part except for drive through So the trucks are running. The food is going to be there. Don't, don't panic. Don't hoard. With multiple meat processing plants around the country experiencing outbreaks, the spotlight is on the state's largest agricultural industry. Mississippi's $2.6 billion poultry industry employs thousands of workers who are on the job despite the coronavirus. Advocates say companies have been slow to provide protective equipment and educate workers about risks. But businesses say they are taking steps to keep employees safe. MPB's Desiree Frazier reports. Francine Jefferson with Mississippi's Poor People's Campaign says poultry plants pay low wages and the majority of employees are Latino and African American. Since the pandemic began, she's heard from workers saying they're afraid. They say, I have to go to work. Who's going to feed my children? How am I going to pay my bills? Or if I don't go to work, they're going to take points and I'm going to lose my job and these kinds of things. Jefferson says at the outset of the crisis, poultry workers weren't provided with protective equipment. And even now, some employees are still going to work when they're not feeling well because they need the money. Just this week, she got a call from a worker who has been hospitalized with COVID-19 and has small children. So when they get sick, who's going to take care of their children? Attorney Roger Doolittle of Jackson is with the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. They represent employees at Cook Foods, Wayne Farms, Pico Foods, and Marjack. 
He says safety is a real concern at poultry plants where people work close together. There's, you know, a debone line, a kill line, an evisceration line, a cut-up line. And these are all lines, hundreds of people, shoulder to shoulder. Doolittle says seven coronavirus cases have been reported at the Pico plants and three at Cook Foods. So far, there are no reports of deaths. He says plants are taking precautions like checking temperatures and providing masks. Doolittle emphasizes that shop stewards are telling people they won't be penalized if they don't feel well and stay home, but employees aren't paid for that time. We get numbers every day, twice a day, on the number of people who have come to us with symptoms. That's Sanderson Farms CFO Mike Cockrell. The company operates five plants in Mississippi and employs 6,000 people. Cockrell won't discuss the number of infections at their facilities. But he says they are paying workers who test positive for COVID-19 to quarantine at home for 14 days. That also applies to anyone who works close to the infected employee. Cockrell says they take temperatures, provide masks three times per day, sanitize facilities, and hold small meetings to tell employees how to protect their families. At a news briefing yesterday, State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs said he and his COVID-19 outbreak team are going to Scott and Lee counties, where the number of cases is on the rise. By latest count, Scott had 316 cases and Lee 204. Tyson, Pico, and Cook are among a number of processors in the region. We're going to invest a lot of time in this, trying to figure out what we can do to improve testing, targeted testing, make sure that we can execute our isolation quarantine plan effectively, get folks out who need to get tested and make sure everybody feels comfortable and safe. Marshall Bartlett owns Home Place Pastures in Como, which produces pork, beef, and lamb. He says the company's smaller size makes it easier to keep workers safe. Most of his 16 employees work in teams. You know, so the mask, the gloves, the hand sanitizer, keeping the staff as separate as possible. And then even the staff uh, that are on those crews that are working in the same room together, we've spread them out. We spread out our butcher tables and have people working, you know, more than six feet apart. Regardless of the precautions companies take, attorney Cliff Johnson with the MacArthur Justice Center thinks people should adjust their expectations. To the extent that I can't get a ribeye steak or I can't get you know, certain food in the same, at the same prices and the same quantities and in the same frequency as I can have before, I think, you know, may be a sacrifice that I have to make and that all of us have to make in order to, to keep people, human workers, safe. And the need to make sacrifices may become the new normal. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. The Mississippi Department of Health is continuing its aggressive testing strategy this week through additional one-day collection sites. One site will be available tomorrow in Newton County at Clark Venable Baptist Church. Anyone experiencing symptoms related to COVID-19 and feels they should be tested must first go through a free screening from a UMMC clinician through the C Spire Health UMMC triage app. There are also two drive-through testing sites being offered today by community health centers across the state, one in Gulfport in the Goodwill parking lot on 31st Street, the other in Tunica at the Tunica County Expo Center. To stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news in Mississippi, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Coming up, a closer look at Mississippi's growing unemployment claims. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi, like the rest of the nation, is experiencing record unemployment as a result of the worldwide pandemic. The Mississippi Department of Employment Security has been inundated with calls over the last six weeks, reporting an additional 35,000 unemployment claims from the week ending April 25th. Anna Wolf is an investigative reporter with Mississippi Today. She examines Mississippi's unemployment crisis with our Michael Guidry. Since March 15th, About 200,000 Mississippians have filed for unemployment. Um, Some of these numbers are estimated by the department, so they could could change. But um, that's that's totally record-breaking for us. Um, We saw, you know, in the 20 to 30,000 range um, during one week after Katrina, um, and that's probably the best comparison to make, but we've just blown past um, unemployment claims Uh, in the wake of Katrina uh, during this pandemic. We've seen about, uh, the the highest has been about 46,000 claims in one week. Um, And there were two weeks that we got up to about 46,000 claims. We're down to about 35,000 claims now in the past week. But this is is up from uh, roughly 1,000 claims that the department is usually handling per week. When we talk about claims, um, because we know that you know this that this has been seismic, um, this this unemployment wave has been seismic across the, the country, not just in Mississippi. Are these people that are actually able to either get online or get on the phone with employment security and file? And is it reflective of all the people that have not yet been able to do that? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it, it's it's almost certainly an undercount because of all of the people that have struggled to get through the agency to get their claim uh, successfully filed. So um, you know that's some that's sort of an unknown for us. But um, the number of claims that I mentioned, two hundred thousand, about two hundred thousand since March fifteenth, are claims that have been pushed through, not necessarily approved, um, but successfully filed. The state's win job centers have typically played an important role in helping the unemployed find work. Now they are being utilized as places where people who might not have personal Internet connection can go and try to file online. Um, how have you seen the, the utilization of those centers change over the last six weeks? The win job centers really are not unemployment offices. They're employment offices. That's where people can go to talk to an employment specialist and hopefully get a referral to employment. Um and, and really, a person goes in there, they're, they're uh, directed to use a, a website to look for a job. Um, and that's essentially the service that's, that's offered there. You know, they close those offices to the public uh, for safety in light of COVID. And so um, they have, the state office has directed people to call their local wind job center if they're having trouble getting through the state office. But the problem is, those wind job centers don't have unemployment expertise. They can't fix a an issue on someone's unemployment claim. That's kind of a shift that's happened over the last uh, two two decades or so, where um, these offices are are shifting their priority to employment, not unemployment. And so you don't have the unemployment expertise at those centers, and that's that's been a challenge for the agency. And I think you're seeing that play out. 
We've seen the initial claims, you know, kind of stay upwards of of 35,000 over the last four weeks. And you said that the continued claims are what indicate people actually having their applications approved and being on the unemployment roll. So based on the trends of initial claims over the last four weeks, what does that number of continued claims look like going into the summer? The system was only updated to accept pandemic unemployment assistance claims. Those are the claims of expanded eligibility for people who are self-employed or uh, contract workers or who quit as a direct result of the, um, of the virus. These are people who, don't, who do not usually qualify for regular unemployment insurance. The system was only updated to accept those claims on April 21st, so you're talking about only about a week. Um, so I think we're going to see a, a, a gigantic increase in unemployment claims in that category. Um, and then I think because more people are getting approved um, because of expanded eligibility, you're just going to see that number rise. Um, I, it's hard to say, you know, once businesses start reopening, we should see people falling off. But it's really hard to know sort of how many of these lost jobs and of these unemployed folks are or are sort of permanent at this point. Um, there was a study by the Economic Policy Institute that estimated that Mississippi would lose about 110,000 jobs. Um, so you're looking at like maybe, and, and this is just estimating, but as of the unemployment claims that we've seen right now, maybe half of those are permanent job losses. Um, but I, I think we're only going to know that as soon as we see businesses opening back up and people going back to work. Anna Wolf is an investigative reporter with Mississippi Today. Thank you so much, Anna. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, state universities begin weighing how to safely open in the fall. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Institutions of Higher Learning and Dr. Alfred Rankins, Jr. are establishing the Safe Start Task Force for the university system. Comprised of two members from each institution, the task force is charged with crafting a system-level plan for starting and completing the fall 2020 semester in the safest and most effective way. Dr. David Shaw, provost of Mississippi State University, is chair of Safe Start. He discusses how the group will address the challenges presented by the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Rankins has charged us with really taking a look at how universities can provide the best and safest educational experience possible for our students with an on-campus experience this fall. And so it really is a balancing act with uh, trying to be sure that our students get get all of the benefits from the on-campus experience, but at the same time making sure that it's done in a very safe and effective manner. And we'll not only be working within IHL, but also obviously working with the governor and his staff to be sure that we're uh, in alignment with, with one another. Is it possible that there would be some in-person classes and while there would be online classes as well? Well, I can 
on our campus, we're having a very robust conversation about that. Um, you know, and we're doing a lot of scenario planning even in advance of the task force. And so we've had uh, conversations about uh, things like, for example, do we take some of the large classes and have some of the, some of the classes, um, offered, uh, online and some of them offered face to face? Do we take portions of the classes that could be offered online and then divide up some of the other portions and have small groups or subsets of the classes meet? And so there's a lot of those kinds of possibilities that we're thinking about. And, you know, we obviously have to see what the situation is at the time that school starts in August. But at the same time, we also are thinking about things like what if we did require the the six-foot social distancing and how do you accomplish that in a classroom and how can you manage the flow of students in hallways between classes and all of those kinds of things we're really taking a hard look at. Dr. Shaw, are there any students at MSU who are currently living on campus? So we did not mandate that students had to move, but we strongly encouraged it if they had an option. And so by the end of the semester, we had something on the order of uh, three or 400 students that really felt like that they needed to be here on campus for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, they did not have a place that they could go. If they were an international student, they could not go home. Or we had some students that said, I, I don't have internet access if I go home. And so for those students, we did provide accommodations. And then for the summer term, obviously that is usually a, a fairly small number anyway. Uh, we have a few students for various reasons that are going to be staying uh, here on campus, even though we're all online for the summer. But that is a very small number. What will it take for sports to resume? Are you just concerned with the academics right now, or are you looking at extracurricular activities? And, of course, football season is uh, is pretty big in Mississippi. Well, it is. And, I, you know, that that is obviously – first and foremost on a lot of people's mind and I can tell you that that John Cohen our athletic director is spending a great deal of time in conversations with his counterparts within the SEC and with the NCAA uh, with those very conversations uh, we all want to see a return to normalcy from an athletic standpoint and so the contingency planning that I've been talking about from an academics uh perspective is also happening uh, in spades with uh, the uh, athletic programs as well, because uh, I think all of us recognize that both from a, a revenue standpoint, but also just from a student and a fan experience, we all want to be back uh, watching football. Have college admissions uh, criteria changed at all? High school students moving on to college now? We, we have had to make some adjustments. Uh, you know, a number of our students uh, that that uh, have were in the process of applying, for example, ran into challenges in being able to take the ACT. And so there, was a, there are a lot of things like that that we're trying to be sure that we recognize that this is a really unique and very difficult situation for our prospective students. So we're working with them very closely to try to be able to understand the, the individual situations that they are in and then be able to accommodate that. And I think we're blessed as a public institution to be able to really uh, understand that many of the students that, that we bring to school here are first generation or simply don't have the, the support structure in place. And so we actually have, for 
reasons well beyond COVID-19 have been really working to be able to sure that uh, be able to be sure that we can accommodate those students in the best ways that we can. Are you going to be taking any cues from what other universities around the country are planning for the fall? I can tell you that uh, there's not a day that goes by that uh, I and a number of others at this institution and, and every other institution are taking a, a careful look at that. And so, for example, we have uh, within the SEC, the provosts have a, a, an online forum in which we compare notes and share ideas. And that has that is going on at, at every level uh, our, within within the state of Mississippi. Uh, we just are continually comparing notes and thinking together about, uh, you know, what are the best practices? What are the obstacles that we all need to be considering? And just uh, really trying to learn from what's going on in other parts of the country as well. Dr. David Shaw is the provost and executive vice president of Mississippi State University and the chairman of the Safe Start Task Force. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. Thank you so much as well. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.